Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week three of our study of the book of James, and today we are going to move forward in the scriptures. And our focus this time is going to be on James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So let's go ahead and read the scripture for today to see what James has for us, and then we will discuss from there. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given in every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So we began this study with a discussion of the trials of life, and now we're moving into the struggles of those trials and our tendency to want to blame God for them. We want to blame God for tempting us, for allowing us to succumb to sin, for giving us weakness by withdrawing himself. There's a lot of things that we try to pin on God as it being his fault. But what James is showing us today is that none of it is God's fault. It is all our fault. And There are times, granted, that God will allow us to fail because he wants us to learn a valuable lesson on what it means to try to act independently of him. Now, I started with verse 12 again intentionally because I want us to be reminded of the trials that we had been talking about and what is at stake. If we persevere under trial then we will receive the crown of life. This is important. These trials are necessary for our sanctification, for us to be made holy in God's sight. And through our perseverance, we will receive eternal life through Christ Jesus. That is a guarantee for all those who are indeed born again. So those who are suffering trial and have failed and have withdrawn from God, completely abandoned him, likely were never saved to begin with. And so this is almost a proof positive, if you will, of one evidence of salvation. But nonetheless, this discussion that James is having in the rest of the verses that we read today are directed to Christians. They're directed to those that have received the grace of God. And so it says here in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So 
is he saying that God does not tempt anyone? That is correct. That is exactly what it's saying. God does not tempt anyone. What James is doing here is he is drawing a distinction between testing and tempting. Testing is very different from tempting because of what it produces at the end. When God puts testing in our path, his ultimate goal for us is to learn something. It is to grow spiritually, to gain that spiritual maturity that he desires in his people. The ultimate outcomes in these trials are good things, right? That's exactly how God is. He does these things for our good and for his own glory. While the lessons may be painful at times, the ultimate end is going to be positive for us, and it will glorify him. If at the end of these trials, something negative happened, or we gave in to evil, or we did not learn the lesson, that is no fault of God's. The fault is ours, because it clearly says in Scripture here that God does not tempt anyone, and he himself cannot be tempted. Why is that? So maybe there's a quality of God, maybe there's something in his character that we need to establish first of all. Is God perfectly good? Is he capable of evil? Absolutely not. He is, he is not capable of evil, not even by a long shot. He is so far beyond that. To say that God is capable of evil would deny the fact that he is perfectly good. You cannot be perfectly good and perfectly evil at the same time. It just does not happen. God's perfection is the complete opposite of evil. He is not capable of evil. So it begs the question, did God create evil? The answer again is no, he did not create evil. Evil kind of created itself, in a sense. And let me explain. What is evil to begin with? Anything that is evil is anti-God. And evil would not exist if we, as creatures, did not have free will. Free will was given to us by God. That is a gifting of His. He did not create robots that could not think for themselves. He did not create automatons in flesh. He gave us the ability to think and to reason and to make our own decisions on things. So that is a natural consequence to giving us free will, isn't it? If you give a creature the ability to choose for itself whether it's going to agree with God or not, that itself is evil. So, no, God did not create evil, but he did create humanity and seemingly angels, because they fell from heaven too, to be able to make their own decisions, and therefore evil came into existence through rebellion against God. Before humans sinned, this whole universe was free from the corruption and the decay that we see. What happened in the Garden of Eden affected everything on a cosmic scale. If we truly take what the Bible says 
literally, which we should, Adam and Eve, our ancestors, caused all of death and decay and destruction to take place in all of creation simultaneously through choosing to disobey God. So to say that God created evil is incorrect, right? For us to say that God can be tempted by evil is incorrect because he is perfectly holy. There is nothing that can influence him. And lastly, he doesn't tempt anyone. Because if he were to tempt you, what is the end result of temptation? Temptation is designed and used by demonic forces in order to draw you to perform evil acts, things that are against God, things that are sinful. That is the end result. So the end result kind of tells you right there whether or not it's a test or whether it's temptation. If the test is designed to make you better, then it is not temptation. It is something from God. But if it's something that is meant to take you away from God, then that is a temptation. When it is something that draws you to sin. So no, God is not at fault for any of this. Verse 14 continues to explain that to us. But each one is tempted when he is carried away. That's not a capital H. That's a lowercase h to represent the human. Each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So that is how we end up sinning. That is how temptation has its effect in us. When we are drawn by the temptation and we run with it, it entices us, it captures our minds or our hearts, and we give in to it. That is what happens. And then there's a progression that we see here. Temptation is just the beginning. And to be tempted is not a sin. We're going to be tempted all the time. In fact, the stronger that you hold on to God, the more that you hold fast to his word and in obedience to him, the more that you will be tempted. The temptations are going to increase, but they won't have nearly the effect on you as they would if you were far from God. You will be able to resist because you trust God to protect you. But it says here that temptation, when you give in to it, carries you away and it entices you because it is something that is within you that causes the temptation to have effect. It's the lust that's within your own heart. The lust, the desire for something that you should not have. Something that you know you shouldn't have. Something that you know is not going to be beneficial to you. Something that you know in your judgment of what's right and wrong, that you know is wrong. But let's be honest with ourselves. How often do we give in to those lusts? We give in to them all the time. At least I do. I think I'm fairly average when it comes to being a human being. And I succumb to those lusts all the time. Now, when I say lust, I'm not saying adultery or sexual stuff. That is something lustful. But you can lust over anything. 
You can lust over food. You can lust over possessions. You can lust over attention. You can lust after fame. You can lust after fortune. You can lust after power. There is no end to what can be considered lust. So when we say lust, we're talking about things that influence us into being envious or jealous or possessive or a strong desire for something. That's ultimately what lust is, a strong desire for something that you do not have and you probably shouldn't have. That is what causes you to give it to the temptation. I used to blame God, too, for this. I used to say, Lord, I feel your presence so often in my life, and I know that you hold me fast, and I know that you're protecting me. But Lord, there are those days that you withdraw your presence from me. You let go of the training wheels, so to speak, and you see if I can pedal on my own. And when you let me go, that's when I fall every single time. But that's not the proper response, and that is out of ignorance when I spoke that. Because the Bible has since taught me that it is not God's fault for me to fall. It is not his fault that I give in to temptation. It is mine. So what God, through the Holy Spirit, has shown me through his conviction is that there is something within our own hearts that needs to be purified so that we do not give in to these temptations anymore. We need to identify what those lusts in our heart are. We need to repent of those lusts, and we need to offer them up to God as a spiritual sacrifice. Through that, we will be able to resist these lusts, resist these temptations, and not let them have their way. When lust has conceived, like it says in verse 15, it gives birth to sin. There is an act being done here, a progression, right? Verse 15 uses language similar to that of creating a child. So if we say, for example, that lust is able to get pregnant, what makes lust get pregnant? It's the temptation. If temptation is allowed to be inserted into the lust, then it will conceive and it will give birth to sin. So again, it makes it very clear that temptation on its own is not sin, because everyone is tempted. If that were the case, then even Jesus sinned, because he was tempted by Satan himself. But our Lord did not give in to those temptations, right? Therefore, he remained sinless. So if we do not give in to temptation, we will remain sinless in that way. But if we give in to the temptation, then it will interact with the lust that's in our heart, and it will give birth to sin. And sin is what is unacceptable in God's eyes. And when sin is accomplished, when you actually perform the sin, whether in your mind or in the physical, it brings forth death. Because as Paul puts it, the wages of sin is death. So that's the ultimate end to all sin. Sin only creates death. There is a momentary pleasure, but it is an eternal death. 
And so what James is showing us here is because this is the case, we need a Savior. We need to understand who God is much more clearly, and that he is for us and he is not against us. He does not cause temptations to come into our lives for no good reason. Sometimes God does allow them to come in for those evil things to accomplish something good. God does not condone evil, but sometimes he will allow evil to take place so that something good will ultimately come from it. So that's why in verse 16, he says very clearly, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't be confused. Don't be led to believe a lie about who God is. Do not believe the lies that the world tries to tell you. This is the absolute truth, and this is the purpose of God in your life. We need to understand, instead, this is what God actually gives us in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. So all the good things that are going on in your life, those are acts of grace. All of the gifts that you have, whether material or talent, those are all gifts from God. Those are all given to you from your Heavenly Father. He is called here the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, if he has no shifting shadow or variation, he is unchanging. He is a constant, right? That's the very opposite of variation, right? Something that does not vary. In other words, it stays steady or consistent. That is who God is. He remains the same. He has said that many times throughout Scripture, and it remains the case. He will never change. His standards will never change. His thoughts about evil and sin will never change. And his standards will never change. But more importantly, his love and his grace for you will never change. He intends to do good to his people. And salvation is assured. Imagine us having a religion where God could change his mind about your salvation. Imagine that. Would you want to follow a God that is able to change his mind? That would be the biggest risk and the biggest gamble that you could ever do, to believe in a God that could change his mind on your salvation, or on anything for that matter. So praise God that he is constant, that he is immutable, that he is unable to change, because his character is constant and consistent throughout all of human history, from eternity past to eternity future. Every good thing given is from God, and he will never change his mind. So in verse 18, it says that it was the exercise of God's will. It was God's purpose, his decision, to cause you to be regenerated, to bring us forth, as it says here, to be brought forth. God chose you. And even with some of my friends and family, this concept is so hard for people to grasp or to accept that God exercised sovereign right to save you. You did not find God on your own. He 
chose you to accept salvation. That is called predestination. That is called sovereign will over you. Not everybody is comfortable with that ideology, but that is what the Bible is clearly teaching. That he, through his will, he chose to bring you forth, in other words, to regenerate you. That is in the original Greek. To regenerate you by means of the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel, right? Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of truth, as well as all of Scripture. And what was the result of that? It says that we would be a kind of first fruits. Think about, if you recall from the sacrificial system, they were commanded by God to provide the first fruits of their produce, of their animals, and all of that. But what does that mean, to give the first fruits? Well, quite literally, it says the very first things that you get, you should give to God, but it's also the best things. You reserve the first and the best choice things for God. So in the same kind of way that those sacrifices were a spiritual offering to the Father, Jesus Christ is bringing us to heaven as an offering to God on our behalf. Jesus Christ, our Savior, is making us like him so that when we go to heaven, we will be presented to God the Father as an offering. And it says throughout Scripture that we are a beloved offering. We are an offering of pure love. God rejoices in us as his offering. I'm not afraid to admit that I think very little of myself. I have a low self-esteem, and I don't think I'm that valuable as a human being. But so often when I think that way, I know in my heart that I am disrespecting God. Because this is quite literally what he thinks of me. That I am worthy to be presented as a spiritual offering to the Father in my very being. Not because of who I am, but because God chose to save me. And he chose to save you too. So please don't fall into the same pit that I fall into often, where you think that you're not of any value to anyone or anything. That is simply just not true. The Bible says something very different than that. We are beloved in the eyes of God. He loves us. And you know how much he loved you? He was willing to pay the ultimate price for you. He gave you the blood of his son. He allowed his only son, one of the three of the Godhead, to die so that you could be brought to heaven. That is how profound of a sacrifice we are to him. That is how valuable we are to him. In our own selves, we don't have any value, but he gave us value, and he gave us a purpose. And he is willing to invest in us by presenting us with trials to learn from, by giving us his holy word so that he can be known by us. 
and having Jesus Christ be the direct conduit between God and man, so that there is no chasm between us and him. Do you not see how blessed we are? Do you not see how much goodness God has put into our lives? No one ever said that being a Christian, your life will be perfect. No one ever said in the annals of history that if you become a Christian, you won't have any problems. That is simply not true. In fact, Jesus multiple times said that you will be persecuted. You will have trouble. You will be hated because of him. But none of those things are going to matter if we recognize what God has done and is still doing in us to make us better, to sanctify us, to give us trials so that we can grow in maturity, to come to a greater knowledge of who he is. That is what his will is still doing in your life. So don't ever think that God is just sitting on the sidelines watching things happen. He is actively working in you, and you need to be paying attention, and you need to be obedient to whatever it is that he is telling you to do. And with that, that should really bring us away today with a sense of confidence, with a refreshing of the Spirit to know that God did all of this for us and that he is still currently working on your behalf. So don't ever think God is out to get you. Don't think that God ever withdraws himself from you. God is always there, and it is always us that loses sight of him. We take our eyes off of him when we take our eyes and look at something that we're not supposed to. That's us. He's always there. His presence has never been removed. But it's us that wanders off. But isn't he a good shepherd to constantly bring you back? I praise God that he does that, because if not, I would have left a long time ago and have never found my way back home. Praise God that he is indeed the good shepherd. And with that, I think this is a good place to stop for today. I sincerely hope that you learned something today and that it refreshed your spirit today. There is so much in the book of James that we can look at, but we're going to go ahead and stop here for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.